Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradigan, and hope uh, that everybody has had a very happy Passover as well as a very happy uh, Orthodox Easter. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Central bankers struggle to control inflation with the Federal Reserve starting to move aggressively by raising interest rates by 50 basis points. But investors who wanted action far sooner worry it may be too little too late and now worry about further inflation and a recession. China's response to COVID outbreaks has collapsed air travel across the country as U.S. airlines signal a brighter future as the United States and much of the world returns to normal despite rising BA2 COVID cases. Boeing's 787 faces further delays, as does the 737 MAX, with uh, deliveries delayed on that program as well. Embraer delivered just six regional and eight business aircraft for the quarter. The United States and its allies continued to surge aid to Ukraine with the United States Air Force accelerating development and production of the Ghost Phoenix loitering munition. Lockheed Martin, Kinetic, and Saab were among the companies that reported earnings, and the world is waiting for the outcome of France's presidential election as French voters head to the polls today. To date, COVID has killed at least 991,000 Americans and more than 6.2 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week, uh, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Guys, uh, welcome back. Hope you guys uh, had a great Easter and a very happy Passover. Thanks for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Parker. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Uh, an absolute pleasure to be resuming our schedule, as I heard from some of our uh, ardent listeners that they were disappointed that we had taken a week off uh, last week for Easter, but we thought it was the very least we could do uh, for uh, for everybody at that point to give everybody a, a break, especially in the wake of a long pandemic and allow everybody to spend time with their families. But, and especially on a holiday weekend that included not just Passover, but Ramadan as, as, as well as Easter. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly uh, our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show, and Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium. And check out our two uh, weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on Navy and Maritime Matters each week, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us, Ron. Uh, walk us through uh, the week or two, whatever the major news flow items were, and how the group uh, performed as central banks, right? I mean, uh, Jerome Powell was pretty clear that he's going to increase uh, interest rates uh, faster uh, than uh, maybe had originally been planned. Uh, and yet investors are concerned that's not enough. Uh, obviously, supply chain issues linger. Uh, there's a little bit of profit taking in this as well. Sort of walk us through where the group investors' heads were and how the group performed. Yeah, I mean, uh, broadly, it was a, a pretty rough week in the market. I mean, the S&P was down about 3% uh, this past week. Uh, and a lot of that happened in, in the latter half of the week. And, 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 and it had to do with you know, what you highlighted. Uh, there's cross currents in the market now trying to um, you know, digest what the Fed's going to do. Uh, you, you, you read some headlines in the paper saying oh, the, the, the market's believing the Fed is going to be a little more aggressive. I don't, I don't know why I ever didn't believe it. But anyway, um, so we saw actually pretty, pretty ugly Friday in, in trading. When you look at the uh, aerospace and defense group uh, broadly with the S&P down uh, just under 3%, uh, the defense stocks this week got um, uh, hit a little harder than that. Uh, and we'll and certainly we'll talk about this in a minute. Some of that had to do with uh, Lockheed's earnings report. Uh, but Lockheed was down almost 5% on the week. Uh, Northrop was down about 4%. Uh, and then the names uh, with a little more commercial aeros aerospace exposure did better. Uh, General Dynamics was only down 2%. Uh, Boeing itself was down about 3%. So it was a, a pretty pretty tough week. Uh, on the group. Uh, the other things we you know, tend to track uh, uh, on a weekly basis are uh, interest rates on the 10-year treasury. Um, they're, they're hovering just a smidge below 3%. Uh, 
Uh, and, and 3%, I think, is going to be this sort of mental barrier for the market. Once they kind of break through 3%, you'll, my guess would be you'll see the market um, show some volatility around that. And, you know, oil prices are up in, you know, in this range uh, this week, they've been, you know, in the, in the you know, 100, 100 to 110 range, depending on, you know, which oil you're looking from, which source. Uh, you know, WTI was about 105 uh, uh, for the week. So um, it was a, it was a, it was a rough, rough week for the market. And I think one of the themes that we're expecting going forward, and this is no different than I think a lot of people at this point, is just continued volatility in the market as, as you have all these crosswinds in terms of, are we going to have a recession? Are we not going to have a recession? An inversion of the yield curve, what does it mean? Is it meaningful this time? Is it not meaningful to, it, to this time? Right. Yeah. So it's, there's a, a lot of that going on. Um, as somebody who's covered markets for a long time, I'm always uh, stunned at the delusionality uh, of uh, investors, right? I mean, they've been telling you for the longest time they were going to raise interest rates. They're raising interest rates and everybody's panicking. Oh, my God, they're raising interest rates. They told you they were going to increase uh, interest rates and that they were going to do it somewhat more. I mean, you know, I mean, lack of communication, I don't think, is one of Jerome Powell's weaknesses, uh, right, ultimately. Um Let's shift to earnings, right? I mean, you mentioned uh, Lockheed, obviously Boeing having problems with 787, uh, delaying that program, delays with max deliveries uh, as well. Uh, Embraer's weak delivery figures, um, we were joking before we got started. If you had a microscope, you might have been able to, to, to see it. But more broadly, let's talk about U.S. earnings and why Lockheed uh, disappointed some. Yeah, so if, if you look at Lockheed's numbers, it really had to do with a, a, a top line that was pretty soft. Uh, and you know, cash flow that was generated in the quarter that maybe you could, you could, um, if you want to nitpick at it, was kind of lower quality because just some of it had to do with uh, 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 some working capital. Um, but but that being said, I think the focus really was on 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 the Lockheed top line, and then and then secondary on their on their earnings call, there there were a lot of analyst questions focused on. Um, uh, what the war in the Ukraine means for them, and where could it be potential, uh, you know, potential source of business for them? And they really didn't answer that much at all. So, you know, the the quarter, you know, as quarters go, it was you know, it was uh, kind of meh, and 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 the stock sold off on that. And I think that just kind of set the tone for the group. Um, that being said, you know, this upcoming week we have many more companies reporting. So uh, next week on this podcast, we'll have a, uh, I think a much more complete view of, of, of what's going on. But um, it was, I think, a disappointing top line at, at, uh, at Lockheed that uh, the, the market really, really focused on. And then, you know, when you look at the kind of everything else you mentioned, uh, the U.S. airlines, uh, several of them reported and, and said, hey, you know what, some of the 787s we thought we were going to get this year, they're going to fall into next year. Some of the 737s we thought we were going to get, uh, they're going to go into next year. There was some um, uh, reports in the press that, in fact, even the 777X program might get delayed out to 2025. So there was sort of a litany of kind of what we've all sadly gotten used to, negative news on Boeing programs. Um, that that came out this 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 week as well. Um, I should uh, I should point out right. I mean, the administration is going to Congress with more Ukrainian supplemental spending. Uh, Congress authorized four billion dollars. The administration uh, has burned uh, through that, and and uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met with the CEOs of the top companies as we've discussed uh, in order to be able to um, you know a how do we uh, what are the moves that we make in order to replenish our stocks. But also, what can the U.S. defense industrial base do to uh, satisfy uh, Ukraine's needs? And we saw with the Phoenix Ghost Munition by AE uh, VEX or AVEX, depending on uh, aerospace, the Southern California company that's been developing this capability for the United States Air Force. It was accelerated on 121 of these uh, will be uh, delivered uh, to Ukraine, along with about a thousand switchblades. And these uh, really are going to be augmenting capabilities, particularly tailored against um, artillery. Um, right. I mean, these are not anti-armored vehicle systems, but can be very, very deadly uh, in, in that context. And we can talk about the war uh, in a moment. Sash, um, European um, markets uh, and earnings uh, kind of walk us through, right? I mean, and you wrote uh, a very thoughtful note about the China problem. Uh, we've been discussing this at some uh, for some time on the program. And, and Richard, uh, you know, even before the pandemic was saying there's something going on in China, right, uh, that, that suggests that there is a bigger problem. Walk us through what we saw. Uh, from Kinetic, 
what we saw from Saab and your expectation, you know, and we can get to Rheinmetall expectations here in a minute, uh, because I do want to have uh, a deeper discussion in the war and, and, uh, and rapid uh, uh, the capabilities delivery. But, but walk us through what you're seeing on European markets over the past week and how inflation is, is weighing and supply chain challenges are weighing on investors there. Yeah, OK. So, I mean, European markets ended as badly as US markets did. Interestingly, pretty much everything was down in Europe. The civil stocks were down worse than, than the defence stocks. I mean, Airbus on Friday was down 4%. Rolls-Royce was down over 5%. Um, and the, the standouts, if you can call it that, were actually a handful of the uh, defence names. BA Systems up a touch, uh, Kinetic up a percent, Saab up 2%. So um, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see, actually to see how that shakes out over the weekend, um, particularly given how... Uh, Wall Street ended on Friday. Um, in terms of the news flow itself, I mean, we had predominantly defence companies uh, reporting. The two most interesting were probably Kinetic, the British defence services company, and Saab, the Swedish-based um, defence equipment company. Uh, Kinetic is, you know, things are still taking time uh, to come through uh, with Kinetic. I, you know, they're, they're not prepared at this stage to start talking uh, numbers up. But the uh, you know year-end trading update was was very very strong. They had a, a good Q4 in terms of orders. Uh, sales were actually growing uh, rather faster as uh, as they exited the year, probably nearly at double digits. And um, they are very very clear that uh, you know they're starting to get more inquiries, but none of that's yet come through to uh, orders. Similarly with Saab, although I think with Saab the interesting thing here was that. Um, their dynamics business, which really has an incredibly strong anti-armor franchise and a, and a pretty good missile business as well, there they have been adding capacity, um, partly because of demand. There was a rearmament cycle going on in uh, infantry anti-armor weapons, even before the Ukraine war. But it's, you know what, how they were talking about the capacity that they've added, they've doubled capacity for the ground combat business in the last year and they say they can keep on adding production lines at relatively low cost and at very very short relatively lead time i.e months not years uh, and they clearly see the Saab a uh, a bit of a super cycle uh, emerging here thing to watch out for um arguably one of the iconic weapons of the uk ukraine uh, war I, it's very difficult to think of a, another way to describe it has been the n-law anti-armor munition uh, which is effectively a shorter range, simpler version uh, of uh, the US Lockheed Martin Javelin. But I mean, NLAW is very, very simple to train on and has got an astonishingly effective uh, warhead. Um, and developed by Saab, um, the British ones, most of which have been delivered to the Ukraine, were, were built by Talis uh, in their Belfast factory. But Saab are now uh, developing NLAW Mark II and uh, my guess would be that is going to be on the market, so to speak, um, within the next couple of months or so, and probably going to get forward orders that will really surprise. So, you know, st I think they're probably a, um, a couple of quarters ahead of, of Kinetic in terms of just seeing, seeing the upturn. Longer term stuff in radar, you know, uh, aircraft, submarines and so forth. But it's the dynamics business missiles that's really at the front end of everything. And uh, kinetic uh, earnings. You were were you were you happy with what you saw earnings wise from both of the companies? Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, kinetic. This was a, a year end trading update. Full earnings are, are, are in about a month and a half's time. But yeah, you know, the, the, those those were absolutely fine. Saab. Um, it's their first quarter. They had a calendar year end. Uh, and this was a this was definitely a good start to the year. And, uh, and we're going to transition to a little bit of a commercial uh, conversation. Uh, the China problem and the impact and how it's affecting everybody. Yeah, I mean, this is just a you know a very brief piece of research that we were we were doing this week, but just trying to isolate how important China is to the current uh, slow situation in global commercial uh, aviation. Um, you know, if you if you look at the same week of flying, 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022, and it's very very instructive. You you know you can see the incredible compression in passenger seats offered in 2020. Um, bounces back strongly in 21 and has bounced back a bit more in 2022, but, but not as much. But within that, the, um, uh, you know, the U.S. is close to 2019 levels, uh, despite some restrictions on long-haul flying. Europe is pretty much close to pre-pandemic levels as well. South Asia, India 
has exceeded 2019 levels. But the big the big weakness is China. China actually has is down nearly half um, compared to last year's levels, and therefore way below 2019. Uh, and that's what's holding back traffic. Implications. You know, are Chinese airlines going to be that keen on taking a, a ton of new aircraft this year or even next year? Are Chinese airlines going to be overhauling the aircraft and engines that they already have in service at the rates that was expected by the uh, manufacturers? And you know, Chinese Chinese demand in, in overhaul is huge because of the fleets that the, the big three have got. And um, you know, what does this mean in terms of the, the prospects for those Western manufacturers that have got big Chinese overhaul uh, capabilities and uh, service uh, activities in China, uh, are they get actually going to see quite a disappointment coming through Q1, Q2, and probably into Q3 before Chinese demand finally bounces back? I think you know China is going to be the single most influential market in terms of earning surprises this year. And our view is it's going to be surprising on the downside for probably at least a couple of quarters before it flips and, and becomes a uh, an upside situation again. Uh, Richard, uh, you know, you uh, have been talking about, you know, something going on in China for uh, some time. We've all been back to traveling. I was on airplanes twice uh, last week. So were you, Ron, uh, you were uh, in Europe uh, heading back. And Sash, you've been getting out and about uh, as well. Um, you are overjoyed that Lufthansa is retiring the A380. I will let you comment on that uh, separately. But where are we in, and, and where are we going sort of travel-wise uh, and when long haul starts to recover, right? I mean, we're already being, we're already seeing rates uh, going uh, to Europe uh, go up for the summer travel season. Um, you know, where, where, where are we? Where are we going? Yeah, it's a fantastic situation uh, for the most part. <laughs> um, you, you talk to anybody who's at all connected to the airline business, and it's all about capacity, capacity, capacity. Uh, my least favorite term ever, pilot shortage is being thrown around nonstop because, you know, objectively, maybe there is one. I usually like to pose it as a, you know, a question of pricing. I.e., Are you paying these people sufficiently to ensure an adequate supply for market dynamics? But hey, given the exigencies of the situation, maybe just once there is a pilot shortage. Um, and of course, you know, getting capacity online. I think the most interesting thing that's come out is pricing power. Therefore, for the first time, you're starting to see fuel prices pass through to the consumer in the form of ticket prices, of course, and people are paying it like, okay, great. You know, demand is way up, bookings are way up. And again, it's just a question of capacity. So it's an extremely strong situation. The only other thing people are worried about is the possibility, uh, maybe remote, maybe not, depending upon your view, of a recession and the impact that could have on of, uh, travel demand, domestic and uh, international. Um, in terms of China, yes, that's, that's where all the pain is because, you know, I mean, I, I was very much in favor of the mask mandate. Maybe it's time for it to go. I don't agree with the way it went, but hey, it's gone, I'll take it. Um, and China is the exact opposite approach, which I think all of us regard as uh, objectively foolish and, and perhaps more a manifestation of political control rather than, you know, sound planning. Um, and there they're going to be paying the price, both at an economic level and at an air traffic demand level. That's not good. Certainly isn't good from the standpoint of jet demand. But in the meantime, well, the world's jet makers can focus on delivering aircraft for the domestic European and American markets and everywhere else that's recovering quite nicely. Uh, the only other question, um, of course, is, you know, how long will the fuel price, you know, at, at some point you're going to see the, the snapback with people saying, I want to go see my family again. I want to get back on the road and see our business units, whatever. At some point when things begin to plateau out and you still have $105 West Texas fuel per, uh, per runs, a number, uh, you know, I, I, maybe if you keep trying to push that into, you know, higher ticket prices, maybe things begin to wear thin. But right now, it's a really strong recovery, both in terms of volume and in terms of price. And uh, people are starting to fly more in the front of the airplane, right? How is that going to manifest itself in profits, given that those seats up front are where are really what pay the freight for everybody to fly in the back for a lot less? Yeah, you know, you're seeing an interesting exercise of um, elasticity there because, uh, you know, recently I had the pleasure or 
displeasure of pricing, an international trip, business class. And uh, it was, even with some degree of advanced uh, purchase, it was uh, nicely above $10,000. <laughs> Just like, okay. Um, and uh, for the record, I, I didn't pull the trigger on that for, for my, my client's sake. I decided to fly back premium economy just to keep it below the you know what? five-figure you're, mark. If nothing, you're all about class, Richard Avalafia. <laughs> it just seemed absurd, you know. And It I, doesn't I seem like, absurd. It is absurd. It's not just well, an appearance of absurdity. It is it, absurdity. But anyway, it, I digress. It, Go it ahead. Is, it, it is not absurd that people pay it. And obviously, looking at the seat map, uh, which I did, of course, as soon as I signed for premium economy, um, people are <laughs> pure and simple. Right. And um, that that's pretty extraordinary. In other words, obviously, there is less elasticity than thought at the bottom of the market, and even less than that at the top, the front of the cabin, where people were just saying, yeah, five figures, this is fine. <laughs> okay, I'll buy it. Uh, so it's an exceedingly strong uh, recovery right now. Um, and I should say, right. I'm a, I'm a car guy. You look at car prices and you're like, no way I wouldn't pay that for that. And then six months later, you're finding that that whichever, whatever you thought was expensive six months ago has been eclipsed, uh, in, uh, the, the soaring, uh, prices. I think that there's a lot of things that's driving it, right? I mean, people were not getting out there, decided to get out. They don't want to be, uh, in the back with somebody clutching a chicken, uh, you know, in, in 38G uh, and and want to fly in the front of the airplane. And I think we've we've seen that pressure, right? You, you could do that during the pandemic for a lot less. Now, all of a sudden, when more people are traveling and getting out and about, you're, you're seeing a change in that. Um, real, real quickly, uh, uh, Ron and Sash, you guys want to take uh, a bite at this uh, before we move on to the Ukraine uh, part of the conversation. And before we make that move, a quick word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Join All Domain Command and Control. Uh, Ron and Sash, you guys want to, you have any thoughts on the commercial travel dynamic, especially in the front of the cabin and what that's going to mean for airlines? Uh, Ron? You're the one who pointed out that American was moving people around on buses, uh, which seems to be a little counterintuitive. So you take it in any direction you want before we get to the Ukraine portion of the discussion. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting that uh, uh, American Airlines and I think others have have talked about moving some folks around on buses. And a lot of that has to do with a couple of things. Um, Part of it is, um, you know, the, the quote unquote pilot shortage. And I, I do fall in Richard's camp there. I mean, it's only a shortage because you don't pay them enough. Um, but then it, it gets back to the economics, the whole equation. But but it's also more complicated than that, right? I mean, the U.S. Uh, in, in terms of uh, pilot hours required for a commercial pilot is 1,500 hours. Um, and that's higher than any country in the world. Not saying that's wrong, but it just takes time to get there. So um, even if you do put incentives in place to get more pilots, it just takes time to train more pilots. Uh, so it is interesting that there's this, it, it, you're seeing this shift from some regional aviation back to buses, which does really seem like an odd step backwards. Um, uh, anyway, uh, and then on the, uh, the, the longer haul picture, I mean, really the key variable here is, um, you know, we've been saying now for a while that we're expecting air traffic to do better. Uh, sometime in 2023 globally than in 2019 and surpassed 2019 levels in 2024. The biggest variable for that is China, right? Um, and, you know, if, if we're wrong on that, it's uh, not because it happens sooner, it's because it happens later. And it's because the situation in China takes just longer to sort itself out. Sash, uh, any uh, thoughts on that uh, before, uh, before we move on? I've got very little to add to, uh, to what Richard and Ron said, except that I think that in Europe, capacity is coming back actually a little bit slower. It's it's pretty apparent that the airlines want to uh, want to maximise yields, so prices are going up. But there isn't there, there, you know there's a still a lack of flexibility and a lack of availability on on route. Um, I should also point out, running right, the United States. It, it, most of the time you can do that 1500 hours in simulator hours, and actually the first time you fly an airplane might actually be. Uh, a revenue flight. Uh, obviously, you get paired with a much more experienced crew for, um, what, what is it, like the first 700 hours or something of your career, you've got to be with um, a much more experienced instructor pilot level uh, uh, pilot. Um, but, you know, uh, again, right, I mean, we have a pretty safe air, air uh, travel system. And I would point out to the audience, right, I mean, this this industry 
you know, why did Keith Butler wheelhouse take Smith's out of the aerospace business? Because he was like, look, this is a one and a half, you know, I mean, it's such a low profit business overall. It just, you know, he just didn't see any sense uh, being in it. I know I'm dating myself with this conversation, but uh, Richard, uh, you know, um, you, you and I have had this conversation uh, over a long period of time. Pierre Chow, our mutual good friend, and I had this conversation with Phil Condit, God knows how long ago that, you know, Boeing had done a massive analysis on the, you know, how much money the commercial aviation business has made since its inception. And it was not a lot of money. These figures are a little dated, uh, obviously, uh, given how long ago uh, Phil left the company. But I mean, it, it just gives you some idea that uh, there's a lot of money involved in it. There's a lot of cash flow involved in it. There's a lot of cool technology involved in it, but it is not a high profit business. And indeed, right, the reservation systems of these companies kind of prove it sometimes where they're held together with duct tape and bailing wire. Um, Sash, uh, want to get your take uh, on the war? Uh, obviously, that continues to grind on. At first, uh, you know, it was Russia taking over all of Ukraine. Uh, then uh, the Russians said, "We're just going to focusing on Donbas uh, in our quote special military operation." And now, uh, Rustav uh, Minakayev, uh, the deputy commander of Russia's Central Military District, is actually saying they want the entire east and south of the country to create a corridor that gets them to Transnistria potentially to so that they can take Moldova. Uh, that's not all that popular with <laughs> Moldovans. Uh, as, as, a, as a general rule. Uh, next week, uh, Lloyd Austin is going to be meeting in, at Ramstein Air Base uh, on uh, April 26th uh, with other allies to better address Ukraine's military needs. The French have approved uh, heavy artillery, as has the United States. We talked about uh, the uh, Phoenix Ghost by uh, that's uh, going over there. Talk to us a little bit about where this war is. What does it mean? And it's becoming increasingly clear that this isn't just you know a war Russia's war on Ukraine, that's the first battle. This is Russia's war with the West. And it is going to prosecute its interests, whether it's taking, you know, advancing into Moldova, or once it finishes in Ukraine, moving, uh, moving up and, and doing action against the Baltics, right? I mean, the Russians are not changing course. And like a lot of dictators, he, he's going, he's the one who's driving this train, uh, not us. And he's hoping that European unity uh, fractures, uh, obviously, will We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens over time, but sort of give us your sense on where we are, how European uh, nations are holding together and the aid that they're actually making available as opposed to pledging. EU has a 1.5 billion euro uh, vehicle uh, for aid and the French aid has been under that aegis. Some of the German aid is under that aegis, but there's a little bit of a concern that despite pledges, some of these countries have not yet been delivering capability, unlike the United Kingdom and the United States uh, and indeed France that are making some capability available. Sort of where, where are we, where are we going uh, in, this, uh, in this war? I mean, look, to start with, I, I, I agree with you about um, Putin's intentions. I mean, Putin's intentions are actually to unwind the post-Cold War, quote unquote, settlement, uh, which in his, in his uh, view, in his mind, moved the boundaries of NATO right up to Russia, rather than having uh, the whole of Eastern Europe as an enormous buffer uh, zone uh, for him. And unwinding that, as you quite rightly uh, say, means, you know, he sees the Baltic states, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia as being completely fair game. He um, clearly sees uh, parts of Poland, Ukraine, Transnistria. Um, it's very, very uncomfortable if you are anywhere in North and Eastern Europe. Uh, it's clearly not very comfortable if you're in Finland or Sweden either, which is why those two countries are considering even at this time of crisis, uh, you know, throwing everything in with NATO. Um, that's a, you know, that may well be pretty provocative for Russia, but it's still, from their point of view, uh, you know, the least worst outcome. Um, the war itself has changed quite considerably since we last taped. Uh, it's gone from being, uh, from a U Ukrainian's point of view, a, a relatively fluid defensive battle in close country with poor going in the north uh, of Ukraine, a battle which the Ukrainians won, clearly won, to being a much more conventional heavy armor, very heavy artillery battle in the southeast of the Ukraine, where the Russians have tremendous advantages in terms of logistics, in terms of going, um, and uh, in terms of firepower. And that's going to make uh, life even harder for the Ukrainians. And that means that the quantity of aid that comes from the West is going to be even more important than it was in, in, in the North. And in the North, uh, that battle was essentially won with man-portable missiles, anti-air, anti-armor. Uh, and 
in the south, the issue is going to be heavy, uh, heavy artillery, uh, heavy armed and armoured vehicles, uh, and the ability to tie all those into uh, combined arms uh, operations. Um, and that's why France saying that they are uh, sending the César uh, wheeled 155mm uh, Howard. So that is very, very significant. César has been a tremendous uh, success for France in the last uh, 15 years or so. It's been deployed and used in action all over the world by, by French forces, and it's sold very well. Uh, and that sort of mobility and range of artillery is exactly what the French need. Um, the uh, howitzers being delivered by the US are towed. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly better than nothing, but towed artillery is horribly vulnerable. We, we make no mistake about it. 90, to, 90 uh, 155 millimeter howitzers is great. That's 15 batteries conventionally. Um, so that, that is some serious firepower, but uh, they may not last as long as you'd like. And in terms of um, one of the things I was very struck by, by the, uh, the US saying um, 72 uh, howitzers is the, the second tranche of that, uh, 144,000 rounds of ammunition. That sounds a lot. It is in one respect and it isn't in another. The respect it is a lot of is, is in terms of uh, the freight burden. That is about 120, but probably closer to 150 C-17 flights. That is going to absolutely flatten US Air Force uh, air transport service for, for a while because there is nothing worse for aerial delivery than, um, uh, than artillery ammunition. It is horribly dense, it's incredibly heavy, and um, that will absorb uh, you know, the uh, US Air Force C-17 fleet for a very, very long time, you know, several weeks. That's the other problem. 144,000 rounds does not go very far once you're in a high intensity battle. I was looking at my old planning yardsticks uh, as a staff officer. Um, 144,000 rounds is between 10 and 20 days of supply. 10 days at high intensity rates, 20 days at medium intensity rates. So for, for those guns, um, you know, maximum three weeks uh, and they run out of ammo again. So uh, they are going to need more rounds from uh, the West, from the US, from the Europeans and fast, you know, it's not that this is going to last them for a couple of months and we can go back and, and review. Switchblade drones very and uh, Phoenix Ghost, very, very interesting. 121, I just don't understand that number. I, it's probably not even worth trying to understand it will make sense to somebody in the Pentagon. Well, well I um, think I think it's, it's literally like the original tranche of Switchblades was the available inventory yeah. the Army had. And I bet you that yeah. is the available inventory the United States yeah. Air Force has that's going over there. If I that's think that's case, why it's a weird just, I mean, we, we've got to hope they use them really well because 121 rounds of anything is at, at the rates we've seen in the, in the north, they could burn through that in a couple of days. But, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how, what it does, how differentiated it is from the, the two forms of switchblade. My guess will be it will be longer range, better loiter capability, better target acquisition capability. Uh, but I think that we're going to have to see many, many more uh, vehicles, radars, uh, artillery pieces, artillery ammunition, because the nature of the, of the war is changing. Final point to make, of course, since, since we taped, the Ukrainians have sunk the, the, the Moskva. What an astonishing achievement that was. Um, we've discussed this offline. Uh, the targeting of that was extremely complex. I hope they got uh, help from somebody. If they did, they made very, very good use of it. Um, I, I, I think it's abundantly clear that Humpty Dumpty, as we have said on this program, keeps getting pushed off the wall every day. Uh, it is the bravery of Ukrainian troops, but there is extraordinary help being given by allies and partners, the United States and the UK, uh, as well as we've had some of our guests uh, observe, whether it's in the electromagnetic intelligence uh, or um, other domains. Um, yeah, I mean, there is, there is a sense of um, sort of the West's slowness in supporting Ukraine is is really reminiscent of um, how reticent Western powers were to support uh, Republican uh, Spain, uh, and and then we saw how things ended up in it. Uh, and unfortunately, and obviously, right. I mean, the the Soviets played uh, a, a, just a devastating role uh, in sort of purging the leadership, the Republican leadership, on a fairly regular basis, which made things uh, more complicated. Thankfully, we don't have that happening in this case. But but ultimately, you know, if 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 you don't want your adversary to win, you provide uh, aid at a faster rate, more quickly, as opposed to dickering around whether or not you're crossing uh, a line. I'm very very glad that that most nations uh, have said, you know, 
Putin can make all of these threats. Virtually every arm is a defensive arm at this point. You know, a gun can, you yeah. know, if, if you're defending your home, a gun is a defensive weapon. If I break into your home and shoot you in your living room, it's an offensive weapon. Uh, and I think that these are absurd differentiations. Um, are you yeah, still- I mean, I'm ju- ju- just, just to add to that, I mean, I think that you know, in terms of economy, probably the most interesting and frankly, slightly de- depressing spat that's occurred this week has been quite a major row within Germany about whether Johnson Schultz is, is living up to his uh, claims to be su- supplying the uh, Ukrainians. Uh, and he has been reported to have uh, reduced the um, uh, the list of equipment that Germany is prepared to supply to Ukraine to a very small, very small uh, portion of, of what they've been asking for. And what this does is this does highlight the, you know, the tensions within the German coalition the Social Democratic Party, which is uh, Chancellor Scholz's uh, party, are, have been heavily pro pro relations with Russian, pro trade with Russian Russia for many years, and that is making them more reluctant to realise that things have fundamentally changed, and the Russian is now an out and out military enemy that needs to be addressed and needs to be dealt with than than they would have been. Although, frankly, I suspect that uh, Angela Merkel would have had the same problems. Um, your uh, German uh, is uh, is decent, and you know the country well. How how much of this is really the Mittelstadt, uh, the the German industrial complex that's looking forward to Russia getting back to normal and China getting back to normal, so that uh, you know it's about trade. And as uh, Germans have told me, well, I mean, Russian energy is cheap, you know, as though there's something wrong with me in 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 the way that I'm looking at this. Um, you know, I mean, this is key to our economic success. And, you know, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, you know, how, how much of this is just sort of German industry hoping things get back to a normal that will never happen again? I think a lot, I, I think a lot of it is. And, I, you know, talking to companies uh, across the pace, even a month ago, they were saying it's going to be normal within three months. I think that the scales are falling from most people's, most companies' eyes. Uh, but it's hardest in Germany. I mean, Germany is the most successful uh, trading, exporting nation in the Western Bloc by by a long way. Um, it's what Germany does more and better. And you're absolutely right. China and Russia, uh, or China in particular, is the, the major market. Russia is the major uh, supplier of, of power um, and petrochemicals. So it, that's, it takes a long time for them to over, uh, overcome that. I think there is a particular political problem, though, within the SPD, uh, who have for generations um, uh, prided themselves on, uh, you know, Ostpolitik, the the relationship, trying to develop a trading relationship with the East to reduce tensions Uh, and losing that mindset. um, It may be that a bunch of, you know, fundamentally middle aged men who were brought up on that may not be the right people to completely shake that off. Um, we have a, uh, a King's College uh, graduate uh, on, on the line. Richard, sort of your strategic ta- take on uh, where we are, uh, the importance of this, right? I mean, we've been talking about this program and I've been writing and saying it as well, right? I mean, this is Russia's war with the West. This is the first battle of that war with the West. We're in World War III, whether we want to admit it or not, uh, with the lines really being drawn, right? We heard Xi Jinping last week, Um you know, say how indivisible the links between Russia uh, and uh, China are. There was a major amphibious exercise the uh, uh, Chinese conducted, may, you know, underscoring that this is about uh, Taiwan, uh, ultimately. Um, I mean, I, I think as tragic as this war is, um, an advantage is that it is focusing the minds of the United States in terms of um, what are some challenges, problems, and how do we step up our own game as we are uh, trying to step it up? And Ron, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that in a moment. But sort of give us give us your sense on sort of where we are, where we're going, and what all of this means. Uh, because, you know, you're not just a first-rate aviation analyst, but you're also a first-rate military analyst. Well, you're too kind. Um, you know, and the thing that hits me more and more, well, first of all, beyond the sheer horrible tragedy of... Uh, you know, what's befallen the Ukrainians, and uh, a lot of my family hails from there, so uh, it's it's it it really it's horrible. Um, but on a strategic level, just what desperate incompetence this shows uh, in Putin's mind and and whoever you know sycophants he surrounded himself with, you know, I mean, I think this has to be unless something really really horrible happens, 
you know, i.e. nukes or something, then otherwise this this just looks like it's a railroad to defeat. It's the it, it's sort of like that time in late 1953 when the French military decided let's land a parachute division in Dnbnfu and said, oh, well, this looks like a perfectly good place to fight a battle. No, this is a really bad place to fight a battle. And I think it was, gosh, John Nagel this week wrote a piece um, in, in one of the, the defense trade uh, Just hold on a second. Restate that. John Nagel. No, sorry. And I think it was John Nagel this week who wrote a piece on one of the defense uh, websites. And, and his conclusion for a long-term conflict is, we could do this all day. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, this is a meat grinder for the Russian military. And it's not like they had a really deep bench in terms of weapons, munitions, and, and logistical capabilities and indeed personnel. And it's being eroded every single day. So if they've chosen to fight a war with the West and they've decided to go through Ukraine, oh boy, again, strategic incompetence. And I keep coming back to the start of this when Trump and a few other sycophants said, wow, Putin's a strategic genius. And you realize, oh my dear God, (laughs) there's absolutely no way to read this as anything other than craven imbecilic stupidity. And it's going to end very badly with the eclipse of Russia as a major power. And, you know, I, both on an economic level, on a military level, and on a moral level, obviously that's gone. And if ever if it ever existed, and I think more and more, you know, we're going to have to turn our focus to China because they're the ones learning from this. They're the ones with the deep bench in terms of economy, in terms of military planning. You know, I, I predict even if this is a long war, and I, I feel absolutely terrible for the victims of it. But even if in in a year, this will not really be a factor. We we better be focused on the Pacific still. Uh, As opposed to non-imbecilic stupidity. So I'm glad that you made that. uh, (laughs) Indeed. A very, very important differentiation (laughs) there. Um, Ron, uh, let me me bring you in, right? I mean, um, how we're we're seeing the Defense Department moving, right? Um, Moving. Um, and developing an enormous amount of capability over the last couple of years. The Phoenix Ghost is just one indication of those capabilities, right? Uh, But it's been pretty apparent that over the last 10, 12, uh, 15 years, right, we have been, you know, working on these uh, kind of uh, capabilities, the past decade in in particular. Um, Are you seeing things, and is what we've seen with Phoenix Ghost, do you think, sort of an indicator that we're going to start moving more quickly, right? I mean, do you do you get a sense as you look at the companies, right? I mean, everybody is working on a vast assortment of black programs uh, that they are increasingly unable really to discuss. Uh, a couple of times they've hinted at it. Um, you know, I mean, the, uh, the defense secretary is going over to Europe to talk to our allies and partners about developing these kind of capabilities, uh, right? Enlaw, you know, Sash was uh, great uh, at the very beginning of this conflict to explain that the great thing about Enlaw is you can shoot it from an ex- enclosed space. You just have to watch the top of the window frame. If I remember your good uh, training instruction, uh, Sash. I mean, from your standpoint, Ron, I mean, do you, do you, are you seeing activity, faster turn cycles, you know, and and our investors picking that up as well, right? I mean, savvy investors tend to be way ahead of the um, of the pack in sort of seeing change. Sort of give us your sense on whether there's the ecosystem itself you think is is changing, and and how much faster folks could be moving from your standpoint. Um, are we seeing that as investors? No, I mean we're not. Um, is the ecosystem moving quicker? I'd like to think it is. But, you know, there, there really hasn't been much evidence of that uh, from what is shared with the street. Um, I don't want to play down the significance of uh, the Phoenix Ghost, uh, but it's a small drone. Um, and that's, that's one thing. Um, when you look at other systems, more complex systems, is the Department of Defense being more, more nimble, quicker, it's 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 hard to say um you know there were a lot of headlines and press around uh ngad there were some pictures that came out you know what is that really how far along are they really it's it's almost impossible to say you know that being said on the programs that we sort of know something about kind of maybe uh, uh, B-21, as an example, with Northrop, everything we hear is it's going swimmingly. It's just going just fine. Um, 
and that you know the procurement of those vehicles may or that system which is not even called a vehicle that that system might be uh, in larger numbers than um, what was originally anticipated but but i wish i could tell you vago that yeah you know we're seeing everything you know these goals of being more nimble and quicker and, and that we're really seeing it we're not um that doesn't mean it's not happening uh, but i i guess give, given that you know we've all studied the procurement system of 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 Department of Defense and kind of how it is mired down in 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 uh, uh, how can I say the the algorithms that it uses the whole procurement process that um, I'd like to think it's changing but I'm skeptical. Uh, I too would like to believe it's changing. I think it's changing. I think it's not uh, yet changing uh, fast enough. Let's just uh, quickly uh, wrap this up. And Sash, you get the last uh, two bites at this apple. Uh, well, I, I'm going to end it on the French election uh, and the takeaways uh, as we report this uh, um, is when the returns sort of are, are coming in. So we'll have a more fulsome discussion of this uh, next week. But really quickly, when it comes to one fly five ammunition, um, how interoperable is the ammunition, right? NATO has gone to NATO standard ammunition to try to make life easier for everybody. But when it comes to the bigger bullets, 155s, powder charges and the like, how much uh, interoperability is there, right? I mean, how easy is it for a Caesar to shoot American bullets as it is uh, for French and German bullets to go into American uh, towed guns? It should be possible, but you will need the ballistic tables for the specific charge and the specific round that you are use, uh, that you uh, intend to use. Um, if you can, if you can keep them separate, then the onboard, you know, the onboard computer for Cesar will handle uh, the ammunition that it's been delivered with very, very easily. Most of them will fire older, older uh, natures adequately. Uh, they tend not to fire them particularly, in in my experience, uh, either as far as you would like or as accurately as you'd like. And it'd be quite interesting to see what natures of ammunition the uh, the US will be. Um, supplying uh, with their howitzers. But you know, this stuff was covered under, uh, under a, um, an agreement called the Quadrilateral Ballistics Agreement, probably 35 years ago now, which defined what a 155 millimeter uh, uh, chamber was and is and should be, and hence that everything should be able to fit into it. Um, and that, that, along with 5.56 millimetre ammunition, 7.62 millimetre ammunition and coffee milk with two sugars are the best examples of native standardization, you know, that, that, that you can point point to. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't worry as much about that, provided they've got the ballistics tables and those will, you know, those those can be made available uh, relatively quickly. It would uh, it would still probably in the first day or so, give artillery the reputation that they've always had in the British Army being the drop shorts. I, they aim in one place and they, they fall about a kilometre short. First round anyway, they'll, they'll adjust later. Well, speaking about industry returning to normal, I know we, we should have discussed this a little bit earlier in the podcast and, uh, and sorry for asking it now, but I mean, Airbus continues to take Russian titanium, right? So how does that make any sense if we're in what is going to be a prolonged conflict with um, the Russians? It only look. It makes sense because there are in the in the short in the short to medium term no other no other sources. Airbus, like every other Western aerospace company, became too addicted to Russian titanium, particularly forgings, because they were very very high quality and and cheaper. And the capacity doesn't exist elsewhere in the in the West at the moment. Uh, and this you know, this was a comment that was made by Chief Executive Guillaume Fori um, uh, this week at Airbus's AGM. Uh, you know, morally, this is not sustainable. Uh, longer term, they're worried uh, that um, if they if they unilaterally stop taking Russian titanium, remember most of it actually comes through the supply chain. They don't actually buy a great deal of it direct at all um, because Airbus doesn't process a lot of uh, parts themselves, but they get it through supply uh, through suppliers. Um, but they're clearly worried that if they didn't take it, that would uh, be a major step down in, in production until unless they can recertify. And I, that would be measured in years, not uh, not months. But it, it's well, it's a very very difficult position uh, for for any any aerospace company that has become terribly dependent on at present Russia, but in, at some stage Chinese supply as well. And we can have a more fulsome discussion on this next week. And uh, very quickly, as we uh, part on the French election outcome, looks like Emmanuel Macron is going to retain the presidency, first president to do that, uh, and is looking for another five-year term, showing that France is uh, going to maintain its centrist uh, bent. 
uh, focused on NATO and certainly being very important and core to the EU, as we're seeing France holding the EU presidency this year. Uh, any sort of takeaways from the election and anything interesting you find in terms of the overall outcome? We've all been stung far too often by making calls on elections in the last, uh, you know, in the last eight years or so. Uh, I, re- you know, I personally really hope so. France as a, a centrist, you know, European uh, force is, has, is incredibly important, particularly in the current times, but actually in terms of the development of the of European industry, the European defence industry, the European political system. Um, and that's what Macron would deliver. Um, Marine Le Pen is at best, incredibly isolationist. She's Franco-French, and things just don't go as well for the rest of Europe, and hence for the alliances that Europe is in with an isolationist France. That's the that's the sort of politest way of saying that. The fact that she has, in the past, dallied far too close to Russia uh, in terms of her, you know, political proclivities, and uh, you know, has come to all sorts of. Um, uh, contortions about why it's important to have strong relationships with Russia. Well, you know, she had the opportunity during this election campaign to throw all of those out of the window and chose not to do it, which I think reflects very badly on her. And is France diminished because of the nature of this? I mean, France has done a terrific job bringing everybody together, not just on Russia, uh, even though uh, there are those in Ukraine who view France as uh, being a somewhat uh, suspect uh, partner, uh, although the French uh, reject that. And Macron has been critical in getting the EU to change its tone regarding China, uh, in part because France is a Pacific power and sees exactly what the Chinese are up to. Uh, from, from your perspective, is there any diminishment of French uh, power a, as a result of uh, the fact that Marine Le Pen has done you know, so well overall? No, I think any democracy that can have two such opposed candidates can have incredibly vibrant, you know, vibrant uh, uh, debate can have a lot of other candidates out there, um, and can go through two rounds of, of uh, elections and and you know come up with a uh, a winner at the end of it. Particularly in the middle of a crisis like this, that just reflects terribly well on the state of French democracy, and hence on the state of France. And that's all the time we've got, guys. Thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, hope uh, you uh, guys have a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us, as always, Vago. Thanks for doing this, Vago. Great to be here, and uh, happy Orthodox Easter to all. Thanks again, everybody. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.